0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado is poised to pass a red flag gun law that's with Democrats in control of the state legislature and with our guest, Democrat Jared Polis, in the governor's office. This bill lets courts temporarily take guns from people who are a danger to themselves or others. Republicans oppose the measure. Governor, thank you for being with us again. It's a pleasure to be here. What's interesting is that it also has split law enforcement. Some prominent sheriffs support it. Others say they may refuse to enforce it. And some counties have created what they call Second Amendment sanctuaries, saying they don't want the law to be enforced either. You support this measure, Governor. What do you think of these sheriffs, and in some cases their county commissioners, saying they won't enforce the law?
1: So what this bill is about is you have a parent of a 19-year-old kid who's having a mental health crisis. What can you do, right? There's a very high threshold for involuntary commitment. They have to be in immediate danger to themselves or others. It's very hard. So what is the process where if you think, oh, my gosh, they're high risk of suicide, they might kill themselves or they might act out? How can we temporarily have a court order to remove access to their guns for a period of time until they recover Their mental health, and so there's a lot of discussions about what is should that process look like. Right, we care deeply about people's Second Amendment rights. Obviously, who doesn't sympathize with a parent in that situation or a spouse in that situation where they see somebody uh, having a mental health crisis unfold. That's what this is about, and it's obviously a discussion where I've encouraged my colleagues and my lawmakers to listen to the voices of, you know, sheriffs and police chiefs and many others in this, as well as uh, victim advocates and uh, parents who've gone through this themselves. Attorney General Phil Weiser, a Democrat, told a state senate committee that if
0: the red flag bill passes, sheriffs who fail to enforce it should resign. Do you agree
1: Well, I'm not asking any sheriff to resign. We have a lot of terrific sheriffs on both sides of the aisle. Uh, If they want to be lawmakers, then, you know, sheriffs should run for state legislature, as some do. But your job as a sheriff is to enforce the law.
0: And if they don't, what should the consequences be?
1: I think the voters in their counties certainly take that into account. And, uh, you know, there's many laws that I personally or others may disagree with, with sheriffs on. And, I mean, each sheriff has their own opinions, but they didn't run to be sheriff for their opinions. They ran to be sheriff to enforce the law fairly and to keep the peace. Here's a key argument that's made against the red flag bill.
0: It would require the person whose gun was seized to prove they're no longer a risk in order to get a firearm back. Republicans have repeatedly sought to shift that burden of proof to those who sought the protection order. Otherwise, they say gun owners are deprived of their due process rights, and that's unconstitutional. Do you have any concern that this measure violates the Constitution?
1: Well, I've encouraged the authors to work with uh, folks who have due process concerns to address those. You know, Many states have a process around this, and yeah, due process is the key. You want to make sure that you don't unjustly deprive anybody of any right. If you're depriving somebody of their rights or of a liberty in involuntary commitment, the bar should be very high. I think it's been estimated that if we have this kind of extreme risk protection law and might be used 50 times a year in our state, it would be a great concern if this was used more broadly. This is a very narrowly crafted tool where we know that somebody is an enormous danger to themselves or even potentially others. And what legal recourse do we have while that person is having a mental health crisis? So it's intended to be very rarely used. And of course, I support, you know, guardrails to ensure that.
0: Why not let counties and law enforcement decide how they would handle the gun issue where they live if their county's values are different from another county's?
1: Well, this is about kind of what the state law is. Uh, I think there is broad discretion for counties and cities to have their own ordinances around uh, gun safety. Many of them do, whether it's their approach to concealed carry, ways that they can make sure that people are safe.
0: When you and I last spoke in February, we talked about immigration, uh, including some state-level proposals to rein in ICE. And at the time, you
1: said this. I've certainly said that I'm not in favor of any efforts that would uh, make Colorado a sanctuary state. I support local control of law enforcement. And that hasn't changed, and I don't expect it to change. So can you reconcile what seems
0: to be a contradiction there between the red flag gun law and immigration laws,
1: because it seems in immigration, you say there should be local self-determination. Well, immigration laws are fundamentally federal. So um, it's very frustrating to many of us in the state. I would love to change them. I think most people in our legislature would love to change them. But the truth is, there's really nothing we can do under state law to fix our broken immigration system federally.
0: But in um, terms of the coordination with ICE, for instance, you've said that there ought to be
1: some local control over that kind of a decision. Yeah, uh, it's, it's very, these relationship between local law enforcement and federal law enforcement is an extremely important relationship. And we're not about to tell law enforcement what their relationship with other law enforcement agencies should be. No matter what we think of the laws federally, ICE is absolutely a legitimate law enforcement agency. There's no question. uh, I disagree with the way that administratively, President Trump's appointees are using ICE on their priorities. And I disagree with the federal immigration laws, but they are a law enforcement agency.
0: In Congress, you were known as a strong advocate for immigration. I think of several impassioned speeches you gave on the floor of the House on the topic. With this deference to local law enforcement, some folks say they're disappointed that they think you're less supportive of
1: immigrants than you used to be. When I talk about our Colorado for all, I always make a point of saying, you know, this is a Colorado for people who are descendants of our Native American brothers and sisters who've been here thousands of years, for descendants of the Spanish settlers, for first-generation Coloradans like me. My parents moved here in 1970, and I was born a few years later. And for the most recent arrivals, we're proud that we appointed the very first DACA recipient to a board of a public university in Colorado, Metro. We recently joined with Attorney General Phil Weiser to file a lawsuit over funds that were being illegally withheld from the federal government due to immigration enforcement issues. So I certainly stand with our immigrant communities. We value everybody's contribution to our state, and we want everybody to thrive.
0: But you're saying in this case, you have to consider that what you've called important relationship between local law enforcement and federal law enforcement, and that in a way, that trumps any desire from perhaps your constituents to say there ought to be no coordination on this issue.
1: Well, again, law enforcement is fundamentally local. As we talked about with the extreme risk protection order, uh, sheriffs, you know, they have the responsibility to enforce the law. And that includes the ability to form relationships with other law enforcement agencies. And when you have the state trying to force a one-size-fits-all solution, it's often a recipe for only further sowing the seeds of division and a a counteraction, which has adverse effects in the immigrant community and in our marginalized communities.
0: One-size-fits-all, that's an interesting phrase because it occurs to me that there are so many other bills that could be described that way. Uh, Perhaps the sex education bill, bills having to do with climate change and energy. I just wonder if one size fits all works in some cases for you and not in others.
1: Our general bias uh, and my philosophical direction is I believe that the level of government closest to the people most effectively represents them. That's why with regards to oil and gas, we're proposing it move to local control for people in Weld County to make their own decisions in Broomfield and Adams rather than an unelected board in Denver making decisions for them. So, you know, again, as a general concept... Uh, I think empowering local officials closest to the people to have the ability to act in the interest of their community is a good one. The legislature
0: is considering a major oil and gas bill, indeed. It would require state regulators to prioritize public health and safety and gives local governments more control over development. Uh, Last week, Democrats introduced a bill that essentially puts Colorado on the same path as the Paris Climate Agreement for cutting greenhouse gas emissions. And meanwhile, Governor, I hear you calling for conversion to 100% renewable energy by 2040. How soon do you see a future in which there is effectively no oil and gas industry in Colorado? It strikes me that that is the elephant in the room.
1: Well, I don't know if it's an elephant in the room, and I don't think any of us know. I mean, I'm not a futurist. Uh, I'm just a uh, elected official here. I mean, but you, you know, said goals. We, we produce molybdenum. It comes and goes depending on the price of commodities. Uh, we've produced gold and silver in the past. And uh, as long as there's a market for it, we'll produce oil and gas. So, I mean, I I certainly uh, see that continuing for the foreseeable future. Uh, I think we can achieve and we will achieve 100% renewable energy for the grid by 2040. But many cars will still use uh, oil and gas. People will have generators that use oil and gas. And, of course, I don't know what other states and countries will be doing. In the face, though, of climate change, let let me speak to your
0: desires as opposed to your ability to, to see a crystal ball. Do you have a desire that someday there is an oil- and gas-free Colorado.
1: Again, our goal with the grid, how we power uh, our electricity, is to move as quick as we can from coal-based power to less expensive solar and wind power. It's really a question of how do we retire more costly coal assets uh, and how we can make sure we provide opportunities for the men and women that work in those coal-fired plants. But we shouldn't force ratepayers to subsidize these legacy assets uh, which only cost us more to have online and pollute our air. Of course, plants are converting to gas. And I, I think this is so interesting. Like,
0: why not just say, I'd love a day when there's not fossil fuel development in this state?
1: Well, it's, it's All, an, it, well I mean, it, again, you, you want to have a futurist on your show and talk about how the whole world is going. Let's just talk about automobiles for a second because we've talked about the grid. Colorado, yes, we want to be a leadership state in electric vehicles, in hybrids, in in low emission vehicles, but Colorado alone doesn't dictate the mix of vehicles that are manufactured. It's a global market. Consumers will really adopt electric vehicles and low emission vehicles more when their prices are lower sticker prices and, of course, lower operational prices, not having to buy gas. So That's one of the reasons our very first executive order was to expand choice for zero emission vehicles, electric vehicles. About 21 models are available in our state today. We adopted standards, and states that have those standards have 41 models available.
0: Okay, another bill in the legislature would end the death penalty, and you've said you'd sign it if that passes. But that's looking increasingly unlikely. Several Democrats are wavering. There are three men on death row in Colorado, Governor. If the bill doesn't pass, would you commute their sentences to life in prison? That is, if you don't get something from the legislature, would you act executively?
1: Well, there's a process uh, in place where there would be consultation with the victims when each file comes to the governor. What I would like to see, again, the legislature should either abolish a death penalty or fix it in statute. Um, it's barely administrable as it currently is written. Um, it has a requirement for a drug that we have no legal way of acquiring. It does provide for alternative methods, but those would be tied up in courts and very costly for many years. So either fix it or end it would be my message to the legislature. Do I hear you using the bully pulpit here? Is this something you want to see this session? Well, I mean, it could be next session. Um, It could be a special session. I mean, I think it's important to see certainty sooner rather than later. Um, I do think it's unfair to victims and others to kind of leave this out there as unfinished business with regard to the tragedy that they've suffered. Offered. This could be the subject of a special session uh, it could be next session could be uh, if we're going to have a special session and there's a consensus in the legislature what about what to do this could be part of it or they could certainly do it this session there's plenty of time but I think fixing it uh, or ending it I would just add one other one other issue on fixing it I think some standards around uh, when and when not it's applicable and prosecutors are able to use it would be good It's used disproportionately. I mean you have the Aurora theater killer who killed a dozen people who didn't get it and somebody else who killed two people got it. If they're going to fix it, they need some more standards. The way it's been applied in the past is why, of course, I would be happy to sign a bill that would abolish it too. So either way, would love to see action, either this session or next session.
0: It sounds like this is not an issue uh, you want the executive branch to be leading on. You want the legislative input here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have no strong feelings either way. I think I feel like most Coloradans. I mean, I'm fine with the death penalty. I also think it's costly and inefficient, and it's hard to justify the disparate reasons that some people get it and some don't. I'm not a futurist, but I, I will I have more of a crystal ball on this than when the world will no longer rely on fossil fuels. That's a tough one. I, I do think the death penalty will be a thing of the past in 20, 30 years in almost every state.
0: You've been in office just under three months, and there are a couple of efforts underway to recall you. These are apparently not efforts sanctioned by the GOP establishment, and the Greeley Tribune reports that one organizer has praised Hitler in the past. These activists cite your positions on the gun bill, oil and gas, a law you signed to take Colorado out of the Electoral College. Getting the recall to the ballot would require more than a half million signatures. Does hearing the word recall so soon give you any pause? Do you take any kind of message from it?
1: Uh, Not, not really, Ryan. I mean, I'm focused on doing what I said I would do when I would run. When I ran, and I got you know 53 percent, and my opponent got 42 percent. I totally get that 42 percent of the state didn't vote for me, and I'm doing my best to convince them that I'm going to do a good job for them too. And when we're talking about saving people money on health care, I know that some of that 42 percent will say, "Yeah, I may not like Polis on the other thing, but my health care bill went down." We talk about free full day kindergarten; we made great progress. I know so many parents of preschoolers who, when that saves them. Three or four hundred dollars a month, they will be very grateful uh, that we 're able to provide that opportunity for them so uh, of course i 'm not going to win over every one of that forty two percent that didn 't vote for me, but by focusing on free full day kindergarten, saving people money on health care lowering the income tax rate and making good on our renewable energy goals, uh, we hope to win many of them over.
0: I hear you saying there are no surprises here, folks. This is what I told you I would do. Is that your message?
1: Yeah, I I think as long as we stick to what that mandate was. I mean, literally, it was in my commercials. Like, (laughs) are you surprised that we're, you know, doing free full day kindergarten? Are you surprised that we're, we're, you know, I mean, how many times did I come on the show and say, yes, of course I would sign the extreme risk protection order. So I'm going to do what I said I would do. Our goals and mantra of my administration are be bold. Be consistent, no unforced errors, and be joyous. And, of course, being consistent is part of that. Um, There will be a great consistency with the trust that the voters have put in me to do what I said I would do when I was running.
0: You mentioned full-day kindergarten. What's the earliest that we'll see kids offered that?
1: This fall, uh, and I'm very optimistic, actually. It was included in the Joint Budget Committee's budget request. That literally means this August, when kids go back to school, parents who might have had to worry about paying three or $400 a month for kindergarten, knock on wood, when this passes the legislature, which with long bill, we hope in the next few weeks, uh, that will be free. And, and that means a lot for families who are struggling with those high costs, Uh, many kids didn't have full day kindergarten because the parents couldn't afford it. They only went half day. For other families, that's the money that can go into summer camps or summer enrichment or save for college or save for retirement.
0: Let's talk about a bill that would make it tougher for parents to exempt their kids from vaccination laws. Uh, Where do you stand on that, Bill, and why?
1: So uh, we're really elevating this issue of the vaccination rate here in our state. It's one of the top goals of our agency. I think it's been ignored for too long, and, and Colorado has eroded in terms of the vaccination rate, which is a real public health issue. We, we of course, you know, vaccinate our seven-year-old and our four-year-old. Um, and I think it's important for parents to look at the data before making that decision. But So yes.
0: you vaccinated
1: your own children. I just want to well, point well, out... Well, I f- didn't do it personally, <laughs> Ryan. I'm not about to stick a needle in my own kid. Uh, but a qualified medical professional yes, vaccinated thank you, my God. kids.
0: But you live in an area, there are these pockets where the vaccination rate is especially low, and that's bolder. You have parents around you making very different decisions. Well, that that's you, that that's right. the way I
1: frame it. Obviously, it's, this is a decision. I mean, the minute you try to have the government forcing anybody to do something with their kids, you're going to create distrust of vaccinations, which is already a problem. We want to go the other way to create good, you know, people to see good science. Where are you on this bill that would make it harder to opt out? Well, I'm not sure. um, I, I don't know if we've seen the latest drafts of a particular bill. I mean, I'm skeptical, as I said, of any effort that inserts the government between the decision that parents make with regard to health decisions for their kids, like vaccinations. And I think that that would be, you know, it could be counterproductive if it's seen as forcing parents to do something they don't want to do. We have to convince parents about every parent cares about their kids, Ryan. I mean, that's so they're trying to make the best decision for their kids. And I think when presented with the information and the data and the science, parents will make the right decision. Uh, and yet the, the science and the data case.
0: have been out there since polio. How? I mean...
1: It, yeah, what and, more and, information? And most do parents think? vaccinate their kids in our state. I mean, you know, it's um, not enough, but um, yeah, the vast majority of parents make that decision to vaccinate their kids. Some choose different vaccinations or a different schedule. Some have legitimate, you know, health reasons or moral objections to the process. So, I mean, the way we get along is we empower people of different faiths and of no faiths to have their, their faiths inform their medical and health care decisions for themselves. When
0: those decisions affect the broader community, though? the decision not to vaccinate can make kids who are vulnerable and who can't be vaccinated more vulnerable.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that we've chosen to elevate this as a goal of our administration uh, to increase the vaccination rate. And we really are looking at models that have worked in other states that we think can work here around public awareness, better notification. And I think we can do a better job having a rate that is sufficient to protect the public health. And of course, allows parents of various faiths or of uh, various moral positions to be free to make the best choices for their kids.
0: There's been a lot of conflict at the legislature this session. Senate Republicans sued Democrats over the way bills are read, not even over what they're about. Uh, the Republicans won, by the way. And according to the Denver Post, Senate Democrats rejected a key Republican's request to sign on as a main sponsor of your marquee bill for full-day kindergarten. Are Democrats in the legislature managing their new power? They control both chambers. Are they managing it wisely?
1: Well, I'm certainly, again, thrilled that free full-day kindergarten has strong bipartisan support. Uh, In fact, the the lead sponsor in the state House is a Republican. Representative Jim Wilson of Salida is the lead on that. Almost all of our health care bills, reinsurance, the hospital transparency, uh, public option or nonprofit co-op option. All of those bills are bipartisan, uh, meaning Democrats and Republicans both co-sponsoring them, not just voting for them, but co-sponsoring them. So, uh, I'm excited to see on our big priorities um, a real bipartisan alignment. And of course, we've all watched, you know, what's happened in the Senate here in the last week or two. And uh, I think you've seen kind of Republican obstruction. Uh, it's their prerogative to have their word, but I think. They don't help win over votes by doing that. I think they further alienate the majority. And I think, you know, they will stay and do their work as long as they need to do their work. So uh, obstruction tactics kind of annoy folks. I get that. But they don't actually stop bills. They just make everybody work longer and um, work as long as necessary to get what they need to done, you know, whatever the votes are for or against.
0: You call it obstruction? I suppose Republicans would say Democrats are run amok. They need to slow things down. They need to give ample notice for hearings. What do you say?
1: Uh, Well, of course, uh, people should have notice for hearings and have hearings. There's been huge participation in some of these hearings. It's been amazing to see uh, people on all sides of issues um, come in. and, And I mean, there's been hearings that have gone till midnight, one, two in the morning, just because the legislators, again, both sides of the aisle, they're committed to listening to the voice of Colorado residents. And they've really maintained... That tradition of doing that. So, I mean, they've had a process that said, I i don't know if anybody keeps track of prior sessions, but certainly in my memory, a huge number of people, maybe even a record, have come down here and, and shared their opinion with legislators and committee. Governor, thanks for your time. Thank you. Colorado
0: Governor Jared Polis speaking with me Monday at the state capitol. As we have been hearing, there's a lot Paulus wants the legislature to do before the session's over in about six weeks. But his agenda could be threatened by increasingly bitter partisan fights, especially in the state Senate. CPR's Benta Berkland has been watching this escalation and joins us. Howdy, Benta. Hi, Ryan. How would you describe things at the legislature right now?
2: There's significant tension, frustration, anger. A lot lawmakers want to get done. And we've talked before about the ongoing fight over a Republican tactic to have Senate staff read bills at length out loud. It's to protest how quickly Senate Democrats are moving some of their biggest policies through the Capitol because reading a bill prevents any other work from happening Democrats responded by having computers read bills at unintelligible speeds. Republicans sued, and the Denver District Court sided with the GOP and said bill readings must be understandable.
0: Now, on its face, uh, this might strike people as a petty squabble. Uh, Is it?
2: It highlights a much bigger disagreement over policy and how the chamber is being run. It's also the first time in state history a Senate president's been sued by colleagues. And Democrat Leroy Garcia heads the Senate. He defends his decision to use computers to speed up the bill reading because it would have taken nonpartisan staff six days to read this 2000 page bill. And Garcia accuses Republicans of using what he says are Trump like tactics.
0: It is not a cultural norm for senators to sue each other. There are some unwritten rules and things. Members don't talk about each other's family in a way that you go to the press and say, Senator so-and-so's child. You just don't do that. And there's not a written rule. It's not in MACE. You don't bring yourself down to that level. You are a senator of the state of Colorado.
2: Republicans countered that the lawsuit wasn't a personal attack on Garcia, and it was appropriate given the circumstances. Minority leader Chris Holbert says prior leaders have found ways to resolve differences. He hopes to do the same, and he considers Garcia a friend. Meanwhile, Republican Senator Don Corum, who's one of the chamber's most moderate members and He just worries both sides will overplay their hands. It'll be bad for Colorado. He doesn't have confidence the leaders will sit down in a relaxed environment and try to work this out.
3: It's hard to poke someone in the eye and then say, let's go have a drink. I think we need a a cooling off period.
0: Now, we've been talking about the state Senate. Are things similarly charged in the House?
2: They're not, but they may get there. Republican Minority Leader Patrick Neville issued a statement on Monday saying he must now look at all available options to slow down a bill to pass stricter oil and gas regulations. And Speaker of the House Casey Becker worries these bill readings in the Senate and then potentially the House could derail much of her party's priorities leading into the final part of this session. It
4: absolutely impacts our agenda. It impacts how quickly we can move bills, how many bills get introduced. It is amazing that a procedural move could actually end up with killing legislation that isn't, doesn't even get the chance to be considered on its merits.
2: And she and Garcia will be appealing the court's decision. She said it was a judicial overreach because it's really a political question. I think it's important to remember this probably won't get resolved by the end of this session. The legislature has a hard date to end by. This year, it's May 3rd.
0: Are we at the point where it looks like the anger in the Senate might actually prevent Democrats from doing what they've set out to do?
2: It might. There's only a certain number of hours in a day, and it just depends how much Republicans plan to slow things down. Democrats who gain control of both chambers for the first time in four years have a broad agenda. In addition to changing oil and gas regulations, they want to pass paid family leave. Equal pay for equal work, establish new carbon emission standards and pass a stricter gun law that would allow courts to temporarily remove guns if someone is a danger to themselves or others. And some Democrats have told me they may need to set some priorities within that list and not pass everything they want to. Uh, There's also weekends and they already do work late nights. Hmm. Passing a balanced budget is one thing they don't have a choice on. It's the only thing lawmakers are constitutionally required to do. And that budget has started its progress through the Senate this week.
0: And through the Senate. Um, any sense if we'll see a, I don't know, sensation of hostilities for that process, the budget process?
2: It doesn't look that way. I talked to Republican Senator Owen Hill of Colorado Springs. And after the court's decision, he's been requesting various bills be read at length And he says he'll continue to do so until Democrats slow down the rate at which they're hearing major pieces of legislation.
0: Republicans have not been a part of any of the real budget discussions, any of the real decisions. Everything has been Democrats saying my way or the highway. And the only thing we can do at that point is to say, well, at least we can slow things down and highlight to people how we're spending almost $34 billion.
2: And the budget is known as the long bill. It's hundreds of pages. It could take up to 24 hours to read at length. So the legislature, like I said earlier, will probably have to work weekends to try to make up for any lost time. Late nights happen all the time, but working on weekends would be very uncommon.
0: And that means working weekends for you, ben, to Birkeland. I just have a feeling.
2: Yes, uh-huh. I, I'm planning on that.
0: Ben to Birkeland, she's CPR's public affairs reporter. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. And we'll be right back with a mountain climbing accident that changed the course of one Colorado woman's life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR news. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters.
3: I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was
0: a
2: little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use Kill committees.
0: It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed?
2: Subscribe to Purplish wherever
3: you get your podcasts.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Mountain climber Jean Munchrath thought she might die on Mount Whitney, the highest peak in the lower 48. When she was in her 20s, she had a terrible fall and broke her back. It altered her health and the direction of her life. But it did not scare her off. Munchrath, who today is a ranger at Rocky Mountain National Park, later climbed the Himalayas. And she's written a memoir, If I Live Until Morning. And Jean, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: In 1982, you cross-country skied the John Muir Trail in California uh, with your boyfriend at the time, Ken. Describe this fall.
3: Well, it was at the end of our great ski trip. So we were climbing Mount Whitney, and a storm came in very rapidly. And the storm consisted of both heavy snowfall and lightning. And remember, we're on the highest peak in the lower 48 states.
0: Not a lot of trees around the take. <laughs> no, not nice a
3: good track. place to be. So uh, we decided we needed to escape quickly. We headed down the north face. We were not skiing at the time. We were hanging on our ice axes in what's called a hanging glissade. And Ken actually fell quite a bit, about 800 feet, yeah. and survived that quite miraculously. I continued down trying to help him because he was out of my sight. And when I got further down the mountain, I took a fall, about 150 feet, maybe more, through some cliffs. And so I broke my pelvis and my back and got gangrene and lots of internal bleeding.
0: And got gangrene. Yes. My goodness. Yes. How did that come about?
3: Um, Because I got a wound on my left buttock and I was on the mountain. I was for five days before I got medical help. You know, there was a lot of internal bleeding and it just kind of became dead tissue, basically.
0: At one point, you think... This is a beautiful place to die. Yes. Mount Whitney. How does being that close to your own death change a person, change you?
3: It changed me dramatically. Uh, I was laying on the mountain, bleeding in the tent um, for a couple of days in a storm.
0: Was it painful? Were you in pain? I
3: was in pain. Uh Um, I certainly wasn't sure I was going to live. But it was the evening right after the accident. So within a few hours, it's dark now. I'm in the tent, and I'm about ready to go to sleep. And I was actually very lucid. And I had this sense of this entity kind of floating above me, like right above my face, like it wanted to kiss me almost. And it was dark and it had a sense of energy to it. And I knew it was death. And I also knew that I couldn't fight it. And it wasn't scary. It was actually quite peaceful. And so I made this vow to myself. If I live until morning, and hence the title of my book, I will leave my greatest dreams. And so that encounter with death has shaped my entire life. And I have pursued my dreams with more zeal than people pursue their careers, you know, climbing the ladder or whatever is important to them. It's really shaped my life.
0: Does that actually make you grateful for the fall? Is it possible to be grateful for something that's so injured you profoundly?
3: On some level, yes. Um, I believe that death was kind of a a gift giver in a way. Of course, I could have done without that experience, right? I mean, I've suffered, you know, 18 years of chronic pain as a result. But the truth is, it does give us gifts, and I think it's important to see the silver lining and be open to new directions that life can send us.
0: We'll talk about how this changed the course of your life, but how did you get off the mountain in the first place? I mean, there you are profoundly injured, Mm -hmm. and it's not as if there was a helicopter sent to pick you up.
3: Right. This is 1982. There's no no cell cell phones. phones. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We knew we were entirely on our own, so we tried to evacuate ourselves, you know, as soon as the storm subsided and we were able to do that. I think more importantly, I'll back up for a minute. While I was laying in the tent before we left the mountain, to survive those two days in the storm, I literally repeated this mantra over and over in my mind. I'm going to live. I'm going to live. I'm going to live. I'm going to live. It did not stop unless I was talking to Ken in the tent or I was sleeping. So that really set my mindset of great determination. And I really discovered the power of my mind right there. It was an important realization. And continuing on, I had this dream to see the Himalayas. And so as we did go out and we were sinking in thigh-deep snow, I have 35 pounds on my broken back. It's very painful.
0: Yeah, let's be clear. So you go from lying in a tent, Mm -hmm. being soaked in blood. With Mm -hmm. internal bleeding, profound bruising, broken bones, and you go upright and have to leave the mountain. So we're talking about miles.
3: Seven miles, um, 4,700 feet from the summit of Whitney down to the trailhead. Yeah, I know. It seems impossible. Uh, Determination. I have a lot of it. And I really wanted to live. And the motivator for me was I wanted to see the Himalayas. So every time I would stumble and fall and collapse and think, okay, I, I can't go on. I would just remember that dream, and I would force myself up and go again and again and again.
0: Remind us how many days it took to get down?
3: Um, From the summit all the way down to the trailhead was five days. Five days. Yeah. Two days in a storm.
0: Recovery, both physical and emotional, took decades, though. Mm, Yes. You even overcame an opioid addiction.
3: Mm -hmm. That's
0: something I think a lot of people have an experience with now. Right. Tell me about that.
3: Well, it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, I, I'm not, anyone has ever even done recreational drugs. And so I think what I learned from that is to have a lot of compassion towards people that simply have surgery or circumstances and then they're put on painkillers. And before you know it, they're addicted. I never got high off of it, but I needed it to survive every day just to get through the pain. And gradually um I became stronger when I found the right medical practitioners so that I could work through my pain. And then I stopped taking it and and it was really hard. I kind of cut cold turkey. Um, my doctor's method of kind of stepping down one opioid and then working with another one, it, it really didn't work. So I had a week of great turmoil where I was really, really ill.
0: What was harder, getting off the mountain or the five days or oh, a week or so of withdrawal?
3: That's a great question because they're like comparing apples and oranges. You uh-huh. know, Both were very, very difficult. I would have to say getting off the mountain was more difficult.
0: So uh, Ken, who you later married, was Mm -hmm. on this trek with you, and it's fascinating. Afterwards, you rarely talk about the accident. He even asked you not to tell anyone about it. Correct. Do you think that he was ashamed?
3: You know, I've done a lot of soul searching on what was going on. I... I'm, of course, speculating. I don't really know. But I think there was a sense of guilt because the trip was his idea, and so maybe he felt guilty about it. It's also possible he felt ashamed or embarrassed, you know, because he had a lot of experience as a mountaineer, and and I did too. And so I think when something does go wrong, you know, we don't always want to acknowledge that. Um, And I think that is a big part of why I didn't heal is that I couldn't continue on with processing all of that and talking about it.
0: But that's so critical to healing, is being able to speak about what happened. Yes, You divorced after 26 years, worked in similar circles, though, at national parks. Yes. I'll say that he died a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Did did you ever have any kind of reconciliation prior to his death?
3: Well, you know, I certainly wanted to. Um, It was really difficult at times when we did cross paths at work, like in the hallway, and I would notice he would immediately see me and turn around and disappear or go into somebody else's office there was definitely an avoiding going on and so that always saddened me but there were times
0: i'm so sorry to interrupt but it really strikes me as another version of chronic pain
3: Yeah. That's well said. It really is. I think he was suffering inside. And I think he didn't have the best coping skills. So I think by maybe not having to interact with me or not having to talk about it, that was a way of avoiding what had happened. But I didn't want to give up on him. When I did see him in the hallway, like, you know, there was no way to escape kind of thing, Uh I always said hello to him. And actually, about three weeks before he died, I saw him again, and he did stop for the first time in a long, long time. And he turned to me and he did say hello after I greeted him. And while that wasn't a full reconciliation, uh, it, it did mean a lot to me.
0: Okay, the Himalayas are are in the background, yeah. literally and figuratively in this, <laughs> yes. in this book. What about the Himalayas oh, enchanted you so and got you off Mount Whitney?
3: Well, my desire to see the Himalayas... Boy, we could bring that in from a lot of different directions. I grew up in Colorado. So, I mean, I have been a lover of mountains forever. So I wanted, of course, to see the world's largest mountains. And that idea was planted from a professor in college. And uh, we were very good friends. So I wanted to see these mountains. And then when I actually saw them, I mean, it's really hard to comprehend if you haven't been there. Take the most rugged part of Colorado and double it in in height and in mass. And there you have the the Himalayas. Yeah,
0: it's so funny to think of a place (laughs) on Earth. Uh, where that make our mountains look piddly, you know? <laughs> it is, so
3: true. I mean, it's jaw-dropping, stunning scenery. And so, of course, first the mountains is why I went there, and they spoke to me. But I was drawn to something greater than that, and so I kept coming back, and ultimately I found that it was the culture that worked its magic on me. And what I noticed is, you know, there's, a lot of human suffering over there. And I paid attention to that because I saw that these people, even though they were often suffering and they didn't have nearly the things we had, They had a way of dealing with adversity. They had a way of finding happiness with whatever their circumstances were. And that really inspired me. And then as the years went by and I was dealing with a lot of chronic pain, I wanted to know more about that. So I started diving into Eastern philosophy. Ultimately, that shaped my spiritual path. I became a meditator and a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. So the Himalayas have really shaped my life and they still continue to.
0: Can you give us an example of like maybe the Buddhist approach to pain or perhaps to death? Uh, that opened your eyes?
3: Uh, for one thing, in the Tibetan Buddhist practice, a common prayer and meditation every morning is just to reflect on life and impermanence and that death can come at any time. And I think that can help. That one. sounds like
0: a real bummer to start the day out. That
3: way. <laughs> you know, some people think that way. Um, but the truth is, we are all going to die at some point. And so I think another spin on that is one can live one's life richer by realizing how short life can be. And that's definitely the case for me.
0: And what about pain? Because you you had Uh, dealt with chronic pain. And I wonder if there was like a metaphysical or a physical approach to pain.
3: Yes. um, I soon realized that I couldn't push pain away. And I think that's a strategy that we use a lot in the West is we don't want this pain. So we try and ignore it or push it away and not deal with it because it's, it is so difficult. But I took a different twist at some point and I decided to focus on the pain in the sense of meditating on it with curiosity and kind of exploring its nature. And that helped me a lot because I found that the more I dived into it, I became more curious about it and it was able to embrace it more fully.
0: You became an observer of your pain. Yeah, Perhaps rather
3: it... than married to it, if you will.
0: Uh-huh. hmm I am fascinated that decades later, you go back up Mount Whitney. Yeah. You wanted to find your skis, mm-hmm. which, which had been lost in the fall, right? Right. What was it like to revisit a place where you nearly died?
3: You know what made me want to go back to Mount Whitney is because I didn't know that I'd ever really do that. When I left that mountain, I was leaving it all behind, but... I actually saw a trauma therapist in Fort Collins, and he's actually the one that suggested I write the book. Um, he thought it would help me heal. And so as I'm writing this book, I'm spending a lot of time on Google Earth because that didn't exist before, right? And I'm trying to figure out where we were on the mountain, and I'm getting really curious now. Oh. And that gave birth to this idea of, well, maybe I should go back. And, of course, first there was the question of whether I could do it physically, because this is no just simple trail going into the mountains. Um, this is a very arduous route. So um, I trained a lot for that. And that, of course, helped me to get further past my pain and to get stronger. And then when we actually got to the trailhead and we're heading now, there was both this sense of fear and curiosity, you know, like, what am I going to find? I'm going to find anything. How am I going to react? Because I am going back to where I should have died. And when I actually got back to where Ken and I were in the tent and I could look up at the cliffs... It was just really emotional. And one of the uh, friends that was with us kind of pointed over, look. And 150 feet away was Ken's broken ski. And when I saw that, I, I fell apart. I screamed. I bawled. I cried my eyes out. It was like, you know, this massive amount of grief and loss just came up and out of me. But that was really good. And then, as I continued on the mountain, I did find the heel of my ski boot. The this heel is, of yeah, your ski boot. remind us how ski many boot.
0: years later this is. This
3: is thirty-one years later. This is crazy. It's laying at thirteen thousand feet on the mountain. You know, it's been exposed to the elements. And when I picked that up and thought, "Oh yeah, I did get my heel of my ski boot fixed after the ski trip," I realized another important thing about going back to the mountain. Even though I wanted to find my skis and I didn't find mine, but I found Ken's. I realized the most important thing. I hadn't forgiven myself for the poor choices I made. And that was really important for me to realize because if I could forgive myself and make peace with myself, I could make peace with a mountain.
0: That is Jean Muntrath, a park ranger at Rocky Mountain National Park. Her memoir is If I Live Until Morning, a true story of adventure, tragedy, and transformation. We first spoke in January. There is a fresh addition to the Colorado Matters team. She traveled quite a ways to join us. Not long ago, she was sitting around a campfire in rural Alaska, witnessing a language lesson.
4: The smell of caribou munyakh roasting over an open fire mixes with sharp wood smoke. Annie Wilson, a short, commanding 70-year-old, keeps up a steady stream of Yupik. With a chunk of raw caribou skewered onto a long stick, she narrates what she's doing in her first language. Her language apprentices echo her words and phrases, trying to glean what they don't know by a mixture of context words they do know and charades.
0: It's the voice of Avery Lil, our newest host and producer. She'll soon be in the chair on Fridays, and you'll hear her interviews sprinkled throughout the rest of the week. Hi, Avery.
4: Hi, Ryan. Did
0: you try the caribou?
4: I did. It was delicious. It was
0: delicious. Okay. Uh, we lured you away from Alaska's Bristol Bay region. Tell us about this story we heard a snippet of and what you were doing in southwestern Alaska.
4: So that's a part of a larger story on Alaska Native language revitalization in Bristol Bay. I was the news director and a reporter for a public radio station, and it covered 30 predominantly Yupik villages. And the region is off of the road system, so you can't drive to any of the towns or villages, and it's only accessible by plane or boat. And KDLG, the station where I was working, is the only daily news source for the
0: region. Okay. I thought it was a lot to have to, like, cross the continental divide. You had to fly to stories in some cases? <laughs>
4: yes, mostly okay. with the mail.
0: Uh, with the mail. Okay. Uh, did you pick up much yupik
4: um, Words and phrases, mostly as they related to stories. So for that particular story, the name of their program is Yuchtun, And it means we all speak Lake Ilyamna Yupik. Um And a number of words, ma'kay is a steam bath. Um, but probably the most important word I learned is just koyana and it's thank you. And being a journalist, especially in a rural community, there's just so much gratitude to every source who welcomes you in and shares the story.
0: Oh, I've not been to Alaska, let alone rural Alaska. Help us get our minds around what it means to lead a public radio newsroom in a place like Bristol Bay.
4: I think to understand Bristol Bay, you have to understand that fishing drives the culture and the economy. The world's largest commercial sockeye salmon run returns to that area every summer. So providing daily coverage of that run in June and July is central to KDLG's purpose. Right.
0: You mounted a show every season for just this news event.
4: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Mostly for fishermen, stakeholders, families listening. Um, And then year round, wear a lot of hats. Uh, The station covers everything from public safety information. If the roads are icy, we're on the radio letting people know. We cover education, health, environment, local government, crime, breaking news, sort of everything that you'd expect at a local news source,
0: yeah, and tell me just about like daily life there
4: um because it is so remote food is expensive. Really everything that you buy on that system is expensive. So there's a lot of closeness to the land. Um, Everybody in the community, for the most part, practices subsistence in some way, whether that's fishing in the summer um, and filling your freezer or hunting or sharing the food that you've caught or gathering berries on the tundra.
0: That's what happens when milk is $8 a gallon, I guess. Right. Yeah. Did you hunt for your own food or gather your own food?
4: I never did get into hunting, but people did share with me. So I have moose and caribou. My freezer even brought some of it back with me to Colorado. Oh,
0: we can try this.
4: Absolutely. I'll share some with you. But I have um, a lot of salmon that I caught over the summer as well.
0: You're not originally from Alaska. Tell us a little bit about your route to Bristol Bay and why you ultimately joined Colorado Matters.
4: I grew up in Austin, Texas, and I studied philosophy and creative writing at Baylor University. And while I was in college, I volunteered with the local public radio station. And after I graduated, I ended up interning at National Public Radio in D.C. I rode the Metro for a lot of hours every day. I wanted to <laughs> go somewhere where I wouldn't be doing that, so I made my way to Alaska. That's and, a change. <laughs> exactly. it spent my first winter in snow um, and stayed there for about two and a half years and um it was an incredible opportunity to be a part of the community there, and now I'm excited to be a part of the community in Colorado.
0: Yeah, you're interested in the outdoors and stories about natural resources and the environment, so we look forward to those. How do I say welcome in Yupik? Uh,
4: waka is a traditional greeting. Waka, Kiana.
0: That's thank you. Yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> thank Avery you, Ryan. Avery Lill is a new producer, reporter, and host for Colorado Matters. You'll hear her Fridays and occasionally throughout the rest of the week conducting interviews. Before we go, an invitation to be a part of the show yourself. We're taping an episode the evening of April 8th at the Newman Center in Denver. It's a special we're calling the Climate Change Variety Hour. We're taking a gloom and doom topic and seeing if we can inject some hope, even laughter. Special guests include Hunter Lovins and hip-hop band Flowbots. Tickets are at CPR.org. That's for the Climate Change Variety Hour. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.